Hi, I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor, and this is Future Food, where food trends and new technologies converge. There is a systemic change occurring in our food system. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, investors, chefs, farmers, and others defining that future. Hi there. Today, I speak to Dr. Marine Deckers, the new chairman of AgBiome which is a biotech company researching the plant microbiome, which are the critters and microbes all around the root zone of plants in the hope of creating products that are alternative to synthetic inputs, uh, think fertilizers, pesticides, and so on. And he formerly served as the CEO of Bayer, and also the CEO of Thermo Fisher Scientific. So he's absolutely big name in the agriculture space. And he's joined in this conversation by Eric Ward, who is AgBiome's founder and co-CEO. And as you'll hear, AgBiome has been around for a fair while. They have some big name investors, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and a really interesting approach So I hope you enjoy this conversation, getting quite down and dirty with agriculture, ag tech and soil. But yes, enjoy it. Thank you both so much for joining me today. So can you tell us where you are and what you last ate? Sure. I'm in beautiful Durham, North Carolina. And the last thing I ate was actually a supposedly health-conscious Stroop waffle, believe it or not, one of those Rip Van (laughs) waffle things. Traditional breakfast snack here, along with a double espresso. Thank you very much. From our local roaster, Counterculture Coffee. Very good. Marine? I ate um, non-fed Greek yogurt, believe it or not. And I didn't know this question was coming, but uh, (laughs) I eat that every morning with a banana and some green tea. And then very quickly, I throw all this healthy stuff away and, and start sinning the rest of the day. <laughs> start start with, with a clean conscience. And how would you both describe your food preferences? Wow. Well, I am an adherent of the belief that I read several years ago. Someone said that every bite should be as tasty as possible. You know, you, you only have so many heartbeats. You only have so many bites of food. So I, I like really delicious food. I'm pretty agnostic about where it comes from or how much it costs, um, but that's my very strong preference. Marine, do you have a typical Dutch preferences? The Dutch French fries with a lot of mayonnaise on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you cannot buy it in the U.S. In the 10 years uh, that I lived in Germany, there was in town a Dutch French fry shop in Dusseldorf. And every Saturday for lunch, I would go there. And when they saw me coming through the street, they were already starting. (laughs) I ordered every every Saturday exactly the same. So, yeah. No, I I actually uh, have to say when I was young, you know, I didn't care that much. And it was mostly fuel. But uh, as I got older, I became more and more picky. I'm married to a woman who's an unbelievable cook, an unbelievable cook. So that that is that sets a very high. She sets a very high standard for herself, and I'm just happily tagging along. Fantastic. But I had short ribs in an amazing sauce yesterday, 
with mashed potatoes and then uh, carrots and, and some other vegetables steamed and all this kind of stuff just on a Sunday evening, homemade. So that's, that's how I got spoiled here. Sounds, sounds like a proper Sunday roast. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it sounds like an English Sunday roast. Brilliant. Well, so just before we we hopped on the recording, I was um, saying to Eric that I've been tracking ag biome since 2014, which was when you did your Series A. I think one, you were one of the first startups that um, was so exciting around uh, research around the soil microbiome and really looking at ways to bring products to farmers there skip forward to today and you've got some really big uh, you know investors one of your you know you were actually the first investment I checked back on AFN that first ag tech investment for Bill and Gates Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in terms of equity I think that's quite quite an amazing achievement now, can you just give me a bit of a description how would you describe ag biome today to someone who's not in the agriculture industry yeah, I think the simplest description is that we discover, develop, and then sell and market naturally occurring microbes that we discover that help protect crops from diseases and pests. And it's not very well understood outside agriculture, the importance of crop protection without the ability to fend off those disease-causing fungi and insects and nematodes. You literally can't produce crops. And so they're a uh, critical need everywhere that food of any kind is grown. So we address that problem very directly. The, probably the most important thing we do is we find completely new ways of protecting those crops. You know, if you go back to the sort of traditional synthetic pesticide industry, which really was born kind of post-World War II, it was quite successful for the past 80 years or so. But the really new ways of controlling diseases and insects have dropped off a cliff over the last 20 years. So we need new, completely new ways of going after taking care of those organisms. And that's that's what we do. What's a nematode? Nematode is a tiny round worm, which is probably one of the most ubiquitous organisms on the planet, you know, usually a millimeter or less in size. There are literally billions of them in every shovel full of soil you would pull up in a lot of places. They, of course, some of them cause human disease as well. They're, they're all over. And um, famously studied as a model organism, too. There's a, there's a lab, lab rat called Cenorhabditis elegans that has only about 900 cells when it's mature. So it's a popular study organism for development. So why did you found Agbiome? What were you doing before, Eric? Well, I have to credit my co-founder, Scott Eubnis, uh, largely. He uh, serial entrepreneur, Paradigm Genetics, a phoenix prior to Ag Biome. Uh, he had been working for Bayer, actually, a couple levels down from the gentleman on this call with me, Brian Deckers, uh, and had left in the spring of 2012 and was looking for another company to start in this idea that the microbial world is this huge untapped source of biological activity that hasn't really been properly used for agriculture yet was kind of top of mind for him. I had been working for a nonprofit called the Two Blades Foundation. Actually, most recently, I was over in Norwich um, in your beautiful country in East Anglia. Um, had returned to the U.S. and started to talk to Scott, who coincidentally I have known since August of 1982 when we started graduate school together. Uh, we you know, reformed the bond that's been formed over the last 
30 plus years and um, got together with a couple other leading academics, Jeff Dangle and Paul Schultz of Leifert, and got the company going. Yes, so it's great to have you on this call, Marine. You're the formerly the CEO of BioAg, and you're also the CEO of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You know, how did you come across AgBiome, and in the context of your experience with Bio, what really made them stand out? Yeah, I came across AgBiome because Scott called me one day a few years ago, and uh, I knew Scott, as Eric mentioned, uh, from. Uh, uh, a few years of overlap that we had at Bayer. And uh, Scott says, hey, uh, you know, you left Bayer, yes. And I had become a, a private investor. I started an investment firm later, Novalis Life Sciences, and basically making investments in the life sciences space and also do some advisory for the companies that I'm investing in. And I got to know Scott, I got to know Eric, and I became very intrigued by what they're doing. And that led to an investment and to me becoming an advisor about a year and a half ago, which then most recently I became chairman, as you know. So why am I so interested in this? Uh, Bayer has and had, when I was there, I left uh, April 2016, a very large uh, agricultural business, as you know, crop science, which is mostly uh, crop protection, not so much seeds at the time, but mostly crop protection. And uh, anything under the sun, fungicides, uh, herbicides, insecticides, you name it. We had a very, very broad portfolio with the competitors being Syngenta at the time and, and, and DuPont, which is now Corteva. So there were... Big three there. Uh, BASF is the fourth one. So big four. And uh, I began to relatively quickly after I joined Bayer in 2010, recognize that the way to just come up with another synthetic molecule all the time uh, in terms of driving innovation, innovation from an efficacy point of view, but also from a safety point of view, that that was running out of steam. And at some point, most of the you know, compounds have been made, have been tested, and, and, and it became harder and harder to, to really introduce new products that are significantly better than what's already there. I got very interested in biologics. I actually bought a company in 2012, AgriQuest, and uh, what I found is uh, that it's very, very hard inside of a large company that's focused on synthetic pesticides to make biological pesticides a success. The, 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 the R&D people are excited about it because they just want better products. They want alternatives. But it was for the salespeople very, very hard to go and say, hey, why don't you try this biological product? Well. Farmer says, why would I do that? Well, you know, there might be an environmental benefit to it. Well, so you're telling me that the other stuff is bad? <laughs> you know, so so it, it's, it's very, very hard to get a large organization with 10 billion euro in revenue um, motivated to try different things, which is often a large company's dilemma, right? And this is why often innovation at these large companies 
you know, happen if it's not in the core of their capability and the business happens slow and other people can go around them. So when I left Bayer, I was very motivated to see if I can do something in the in the biological crop protection area. And egg biome is one of my investments. I have a few other ones uh, that are different, but but in, in essence with the same goal to provide safer and uh, still very uh, efficacious new crop protection products based on, on biologics. So was the AgriQuest acquisition not a success? No, it wasn't. No, because in the end, uh, the technology was good, but we did not get the revenue traction. And, and you know, if you ask a thousand people, they probably give a thousand different reasons. But in the end, it was too different from what that company does and what it stands for. Did it form the foundation, though, of Bayer's biologicals department or... Yes, at the, yes, at the so, time, yes. Oh, time. yes, we, 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 that was the start of, of our, uh, our biologic crop protection division. Does that not exist still today? It does, it does, yeah. it does. But, 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 you know, if you think about the size of it, the revenue, it's, it's, it's modest for the commercial reach that the company like Bayer has. Yeah. Uh, it's not that... that, that the, the large companies could not do this, but there is, there is, I would say, an institutional hesitation. And uh, it's going to be up to companies like Eggbiome, I think, to, to show society, show the farmers that this, this, is real, this is here to stay, this will grow, this will become increasingly important. And therefore, those companies have to be funded well with capital. Uh, because I do believe there's a bright future for this and that society needs it. So is it fair to say for both of you that you're you're more interested or, or the your impetus around AgBiome and finding these alternative products for crop protection are more around kind of, you know, being effective and, and potentially running out of options on the chemistry side and less so around the environmental side or...? It's a, it's a fine balance, Louise. It's really both. Um, of course, for the, the focus on efficacy is that, as you well know, growers demand that their products work and as well they should. So that's a sine qua non for us. We won't develop anything that we haven't proven ourselves works as well as a leading chemical alternative. And we believe that's going to be required in order to get the kind of market traction that Marine referred to for biologicals to really make a significant impact on the business. In addition, of course, there are other benefits which are tangible not only to growers but to you know the ultimate consumers of the food those of us you know driving a shopping cart up and down a grocery store aisle where there there's not measurable chemical residue on the produce where there's uh, less worker hazard around spraying some of the chemicals now of course anything that's labeled in a major you know oecd country is safe if applied according to label directions notwithstanding that there's increasing concern about the amount of synthetic pesticide that goes into the environment for all kinds of reasons, uh, some of which are quite valid. And as you well know, you know, in the EU, 
they've stated that they want to cut synthetic pesticide use by 50% over the next decade. So that alone is a driver that requires that alternatives come to the fore, you know, regardless of what your stance is on how safe these things are. So we don't, we're not going around, you know, overtly rubbishing the whole synthetic pesticide industry. It's played a huge role in the growth of modern agriculture. It's feeding, it's in large part feeding the world along with synthetic fertilizer. That said, the future is now, and we've got to try to continue to augment that and find newer and better ways of doing things over time. That's just, that's true of any technology, right? And it's especially critical for a technology that is the foundation of Maslow's hierarchy. You know, we're not talking about a, a gaming app on our phone here. This is the stuff that we eat and that we're going to need to produce more of over the next 50 years as the population grows and then eventually plateaus out. So what is your approach to discovering uh, microbial products and what technologies are you using? Yeah, so we have a large proprietary collection of microbes that we've gathered from diverse environments all over, primarily in the U.S. We've also done a significant amount of collecting in Africa through partnerships uh, that we've developed in the context of the Gates grants that we have, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we built up a, this very large proprietary resource of not only collected samples from diverse environments, but individual microbial strains derived from those. And then something that we started to do early on was do complete genome sequencing of every one of those microbes. So we know effectively all of the gene content of every strain that we've collected. All of that information goes into a a rather sophisticated data architecture that's pretty much infinitely scalable now and allows us to do at very high speed whole genome comparisons among any organisms in the collection, including any new ones that come in. We can search the whole collection for similarity, and we can also search all the public data on the same basis. So what that lets us do, simply put, is um, when we identify a strain that looks like it has an interesting property like it kills a disease or is able to control an insect and very quickly identify strains closely related to it and find the local optimum around that initial hit. So the, the ethos is very similar to what you would do in a traditional chemical screen where you get a, a hit structure and then immediately you make a, an analog cloud of related molecules around it. We can kind of do that at the same in the same way at the microbial genome level. So that's a unique attribute that we've got. And then the whole thing works because we have a validated screening paradigm in the laboratory where we can test really precisely for the control of the actual agronomic pests and diseases that are important. That translates with high reproducibility to activity in the field. So when we see something in the lab, we can be quite confident we'll get a, a, a good result in the field as well. Marine, how would you compare AgBiome's approach to, to others that you've come across? Well, I think the, the uh, microbial approach as an alternative for synthetic pesticides is probably most often used. Okay? But there are also so other ways of, uh, of, of approaching it uh, with large uh, biomolecules like proteins, for instance. And they're also, you know, biology-friendly molecules. They're, 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 you know, they're molecules that are based on, on nature's monomers, so to speak, you know, because it's a protein and derived from nature. Um, and there are different approaches. I think the, the, the microbes are 
very much proven in nature. I mean, microbes are in nature insecticides. They are fungicides. They are herbicides. They play a very active role in protecting plants, as you know. So this is not new. Nature has been doing this for a long time. The challenge here is how do you get the right microbe on the right plant and make sure it procreates and survives in the sunlight or when it's in a bottle or it's being sprayed. So it's more the surrounding technology rather than the concept. The concept is going on around us all day long. And, and that's where the trick is. So um, how do you make enough microbes? How do you scale them up? How does your fermentation process work? When it reaches the plant or, or the root, does it survive long enough, etc.? These are very, very practical questions that need to be addressed by this industry, but not the principle of the mechanism of how it works, in my mind. It needs to be optimized. Interesting. And I noticed that you're also um, a chairman for Ginkgo Bioworks, talking yeah. about the fermentation and the actual production of, yeah. of microbes. Is there a potential partnership there between AgBiome and Ginkgo Bioworks on the production of the products? Yeah, I mean, they're very different companies, uh, obviously. Uh, Ginkgo being a company that uh, can engineer microorganisms, so microbes, uh, by changing its DNA, putting, putting genes in that can be very helpful. There's, there's a, a lot of applications, agriculture being only one of them, but it's a huge, huge array of applications. But certainly, if, um, if it's possible to optimize a microbe, let's just say for simplicity, a fermentation process where the yield is relatively low, and that means that the cost of making these microbes is high. A company like Ginkgo has tremendous technology to, to, to make that bacteria just a little stronger and you know, create more yield and a higher titer, et cetera, and, and go from you know, 1% yield to 20% yield, and suddenly cost of goods sold is absolutely not a problem anymore. So, so yes, there is a, an opportunity in, in a variety of areas. I'm very interested in synthetic biology, uh, the, the scientific concept of it, and the fact that it has so many different applications in different uh, uh, industries, you know, uh, very different end markets. I'm very interested in egg biome because it really is, is very focused on agriculture and the challenge of safer crop protection that is still efficacious as the older products. I mean, so that's a very, almost like a, a forward integrated opportunity of, of, of Ginkgo. Yeah, we're, we're super interested in synthetic biology as well, Louisa. To date, we've found enough natural diversity and enough efficacy within the naturally occurring microbes that we've isolated that we haven't resorted to it, but we absolutely don't rule it out. And it's mostly for expedience that we haven't done a lot of it. Of course, you get yourself into various regulatory challenges in different parts of the world when you start to do that, whether or not you think there's any actual risk associated with it. So I've been really happy with the high level of efficacy we found in naturally occurring microbes. But we've also you know, mined our collection for other properties outside of our core business, kind of riffing off of this synthetic biology piece we've identified thousands of novel CRISPR genome editing systems in our collection, for instance. 
So we put together a small team and a subsidiary that pretty quickly went through those and validated several dozen of them, showed that they had efficacy in mammalian cells. And we've now partnered with Elevate Bio out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, to put together a company called Life Edit Therapeutics, which is using that platform of genome editing tools from our collection for human therapeutic use for uh, cell and gene therapy. You know, we're, we're mindful of other opportunities in this big microbial discovery space that we've created within the company. There's definitely been some question marks around the efficacy of biologicals over the years. Can you share a bit about some of your traction and success and about the products that you have currently out there? Sure. Yeah, so we launched a product called Howler Fungicide in the fourth quarter of 2019. Uh, so we've just got taken over a full year of selling for the first time. We've had tremendous grower response to it. Uh, that's backed up by trials that we've done with the university cooperators that are experts in the particular crop disease combination, as well as with contract research organizations, as well as with distributors. And what we're finding over and over again is the the product works as well as the synthetic chemical alternatives uh, in the specific crop disease combinations we're going after. Uh, so there's been huge interest in it as a result of that. And yet, no doubt, there's a hurdle you got to get over at the start, which is biologicals are insert pejorative phrase here, you know, snake oil, you name it. And that's a bit unfair, I think, in some cases, given that some of those older products have been around for a long time. They have well-recognized limitations and, okay, they, great, they don't work as well as some sort of broad-spectrum elderly pesticide that's a multi-site pesticide, but some of them are actually okay. I think another differentiator between what we're doing in the crop protection space and a lot of the other biologicals out there is we're not selling based on yield enhancement or biostimulant activity. And those products are tougher to work with. They tend to be very environment specific and you know weather specific even. In addition, they're effectively impossible to identify in the laboratory. Nobody's ever come up with a way of testing in the lab or greenhouse for something that will cause growth stimulation that actually carries over to the field. And that experiment's been done over and over in many different companies of all different sizes. So we're quite skeptical when we see dramatic yield increase numbers attributed, you know, given that in a row crop like corn, you're looking at, you know, a minimum of three seasons of data across 24 locations in order to be able to get a statistically significant result. In crop protection, it's much more black and white. You know, the, the disease is controlled or it isn't kind of, right? So it's a, in that sense, it, it's a, it's an easier target, but you've got a very quantifiable hurdle you have to get over it has to work and it has to work in a way that the grower can see and what is the mode of action typically for your products is it killing the pest or is it you know putting them off a, a whole bunch of different things is, <laughs> is that a good way of saying is that the answer? technical so, way of saying it putting them yeah. off <laughs> well you know yeah i mean this, so marine referred to this you know this natural diversity out there so microbes have been kind of at chemical warfare with one another for like three and a half billion years on earth, right? So these things have a lot of different ways of, of inhibiting each other's growth. And so if we look at a product like Howler, that's a naturally occurring bacterium. It makes a number of directly antifungal 
chemicals. It makes some fungistatic chemicals. It makes enzymes that digest fungal cell walls. It's uh, from microscopic studies, it's clearly able to directly parasitize the fungus, so actually grow on it and create a biofilm around it. And in addition, we know that the organism can grow as an endophyte, so within the plant tissue in the root, for instance. So it's probably performing some sort of exclusion effect in there um, and extrapolating from some academic studies that have been done. So a whole bunch of different things. The neat part of that is it, it means it's very unlikely that resistance will develop to a product like Howler anytime soon because it's a because of this combination of modalities those are you know basically multiplicative so if a, if a mutation can occur at rate x to one of these then it's going to be many times x before you actually would see resistance unlike with a synthetic chemical which typically targets like a rifle shot a single target and we know like for some of the leading fungicide classes, like the strobe urines, you can get a single base mutation that gives you effectively complete resistance to that chemical, you know, like an antibiotic to a human pathogen. So it's, it's one of the really neat properties of the biologicals that we discover and develop. Ryan, in your six years at Bayer, what would you say was one of the most exciting developments in the agriculture industry? Well, uh, let's say that the the project that I paid the most attention to was, interestingly enough, uh, glyphosate replacement by glufosinate ammonium. don't know if this means anything to you, but glyphosate Roundup added uh, finding a lot of resistance uh, from certain weeds, particularly in the Midwest, in the U.S., and it became less and less efficacious yet to spray more and more and more. So we've been working on alternatives for glyphosate, in this case, glufosinate ammonium. We're selling that product quite well, uh, particularly in areas where there had been a lot of Roundup resistance building up. And the demand for that increased, increased, although it was a more expensive product. And we worked very hard on expanding the capacity for that. And that was a major a major undertaking and, and a very, very big in investment for, for buyer at the time that, uh, you know, high risk, tough process, hundreds of millions of capacity, new capacity investment. What do you think of all the lawsuits that buyer has faced since the acquisition of Monsanto? Would you have seen that coming? Or do you think that was, I mean, it must have been a surprise to, to those that undertook that acquisition. I mean, yeah. it's been a disaster in many ways. Yeah, it's very unfortunate uh, what uh, what happened uh, with that. You know, it comes to show that, and and that this is this this is a challenge in general. I think in in our society, and 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 it's 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 it's, it's part of the business model. So so it's part of buyer's business model. Uh, but everybody's business model who basically tries to influence biology, which is what we do. You do that as a biopharma company with humans. You do it as an animal health company, as a plant company. You try to influence biology. And there are going to be side effects. We know that. I think the, the, the issue is that society does not accept those side effects. Right? 
and feels that a company has the responsibility that if those side effects could occur, to make that abundantly clear, abundantly clear. And I think that is where Roundup probably failed if that making, making that not abundantly clear. And I think this is, this is the crux of the issue where in an American court system with jury trials, you can very quickly get into trouble. And there's a lot of precedents for this. I mean, it's not just the first time it happens, it's roundups. It's unfortunate, but it's part of the business model. And, and yeah, Bayer decided to, to go forward with it. So the, you need to then live with the consequences, unfortunately. I was going to say, Louise, it bears on your earlier question about, you know, are we focused more on efficacy or on safety? And this is where, you know, safety becomes sort of a functional definition, right? If you if you look at what happened to glyphosate in the tort system, you could ask yourself, who's next? There's plenty of other chemicals out there that are arguably much worse actors than, than glyphosate ever was. So it, it points to the need for additional ways to... to to address this critical need of crop protection that growers have. Do you think that the agriculture industry might have a bit of a communication industry, I mean, a communication uh, challenge? If you think about not only is there definitely a gap between people's understanding of where their food comes from and people are trying to educate themselves more, but again, you know, about this, you know, clearly, well, it seems to me that some agribusiness companies got very caught up in the science and very excited about the, the developments and, you know, thinking about GMOs and gene editing. And it wasn't necessarily communicated to the consumer as well as it could have been. You know, the GM, anti-GMO lobby is, is huge and is serious. But, I, you know, I think it's fair to say that a lot of people don't necessarily really understand what it is for something to be genetically mm. modified. Um, and on, and on, sure. you know, on the other side, you could say um, the dangers of certain inputs and certain synthetic chemicals maybe are not understood. What do you think is the solution to that? And what are you doing at AgBiome to uh, ensure that that communication with consumers and others through the supply chain is improved? Yeah, we're acutely aware of the challenge there. I, one version of the issue historically has been that the incumbents have seen their customer, their ultimate customers being the grower with an intermediate customer being a distribution channel. And the grower can tell what works and what doesn't work. As long as the grower's happy with the results and sees a good ROI, great, good product, no reason to pay any attention over here, end user, consumer. I think that's really where the problem starts, right? And so we're very interested in heightening consumer awareness of crop protection practices. We feel like we've got a great story around that that's born in hard science and really good things for the whole chain all the way from, you know, the, the final grocery consumer through to the, the grower and, and the distribution channel. And so we're we're happy to talk about that, and we intend to do more of that. And I think that's going to be a continuing challenge for the incumbents. It's hard for them to say, you should be happy that this chemical got sprayed on your food, even if it's a perfectly safe chemical and has been regulated as such. That's just a tough message to get through to people that probably don't have the scientific literacy, to your point, right? If you just focus on, oh, well, this is a very sound scientific argument, well, 
good luck with that a lot of times, right? Maureen, what do you think? And you know, did you see the the evolution of you know consumer demand for more information while you were a CEO of buyer in the last few years? Yeah, I think that we as an industry can do more, but I but I will also say that it's hard. Okay, so I am not hungry right now. If I go shopping to the local grocery store, there are plenty of bananas, tomatoes, potatoes, corn. I can buy anything I want. So if somebody stands there at the exit of the grocery store and say, isn't this great? Um, you know, this, these potatoes, they were grown with 7% more yield for the farmer than well, I don't care. I just bought five potatoes. I don't care about the yield. I hardly know what these things cost. They don't cost a lot, a lot less than my car or my, my internet subscription or my, my Netflix subscription. So I don't really care. I have enough food. And I don't really want to take risks to have more food of higher yield because I have enough. Okay, now if that is your issue, okay, uh, as a industry to now explain why you're so important and why new technology is going to help us all, it's very, very hard to do. Now, for a company like Eggbiomes, says, you know what, but some of, some of these res- residues are potentially not healthy for you, probably not, and we can change that. We can reduce the use of synthetic pesticides significantly. doesn't mean they're all bad, but particularly the ones that are suspect, we can reduce the use or even eliminate it with these new approaches. I think that will be a much easier story to tell to a consumer than uh, yields. And, And I think this is the problem with GMO. It was always about yields for the farmer and never about what's in it for the consumer consumer did not relate to it yeah absolutely uh, if you have cancer you say you know there is a new cancer drug everybody wants it right away almost irrespective of what the side effects could be right there is a motivation there with higher yield corn you got to be kidding you know what do i need higher yield corn for yeah and it's a shame that they never really communicated to the consumer that there is a potential to put that technology to ways that could be beneficial to consumers. Or, I mean, it hasn't yet been done that way, but I think you're starting to see it to make a more nutritional crop. I think that's a real shame and that was missing a trick. You could have developed the two, you know, more in tandem. Yeah, that's, if I may, Louisa, that's also a challenge because I already feel healthy. I don't, at least in a relatively high income world. Now, now in a, in a, developing country this huge you know more more nutritional content of food is is huge but also in in our world does the carrot need to be even more nutritious i don't know i'm just i'm eating five carrots this should be okay and if not i take a vitamin pill you know it's like do i care yeah it's a good point yeah so thinking oh did you want to add yeah i mean I was just overall, Louise. I mean, we're very heartened by the trend 
of people being more interested in where their food comes from, right? This is like mainstream stuff now. And, you know, 20 years ago, it was, uh, it was this niche, you know, organic movement going back to places like Chez Panisse and the like in the Bay Area. And now it's everybody wants to know where their stuff is grown. They want to know more about the farmer. That inevitably will lead to a higher literacy among consumers about how agriculture is practiced. That's a good thing for everybody. So we're, we're super psyched about that and we want to encourage that trend. So thinking more broadly about ag tech, moving, moving on from uh, biologicals and microbes for just the time being, which other categories of ag tech are you excited about? And Marine, maybe, I don't know if you've invested in any others, but would love to hear thoughts there. Yeah, so in my uh, firm so far, I have limited my investment range in crop protection. Because I know it well, and 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 you know, investing is already hard enough, and advising is already hard enough. If you actually know something about something, let alone if you don't know that much about something, so I stick. Try to, I, I'm sticking with what I know, and I know crop protection well from my years at Bayer. I have other areas that I invest in. In life sciences, um, from my Thermo Fisher background, I have life science tools and diagnostics. So I have quite a few options there. And as I said, there are in my portfolio three companies that all have a different approach to, I would say, safer uh, crop protection methodologies. When do you think chemicals will be? obsolete in agriculture or do you think that will never be no never and, and, and there's no need for it it's, it's it's chemical the word chemical in me i'm a chemist okay so i've been frustrated by this for 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 a long time but the word chemical is immediately suspicious even though we're all made up out of chemicals and we drink water which is a chemical etc <laughs> this is true no it's so the chemicals there's nothing bad with chemicals there's nothing bad with synthetic chemicals what i think is a challenge in crop protection synthetically is uh, crop protection is very hard because in the end you want to kill something right you want to kill a weed or you want to kill an insect and you want the plant to survive so it has to be strong enough to kill, and it has to be, you know, subtle enough to tell the difference between what to kill and what not. So it has to be very focused and specific. And then it has to withstand nature. You have to be able to spray it. If the sun shines, it has to work. If it rains, it has to work, etc. So there's quite a lot of demands. As a result of that, you get relatively sophisticated, complicated chemicals. If you look at the molecular structure of these things, it's wow. You know, this is uh, this is like 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 complicated drugs. You know, and uh, but in principle, there's nothing wrong with it. But some of them have more side effects than others, and I think that's where, with us, like a company like Agbiome, you focus particularly on 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 those applications where where there is question about the safety of the synthetic chemicals that are widely used and try to come up with a substitution for it that works as well but is safer i think it's a huge need for society and a huge opportunity for companies in this space so what's next for ag biome well we've got a 
pretty deep pipeline we've built up. We've got our next uh, active ingredient, another naturally occurring microbe that's now pending EPA approval. Uh, we anticipate getting that in the fourth quarter of this year. We branded that as Thea. It's another fungicide. It has a complementary disease control spectrum to Howler. And then behind that, we've got some really interesting products we're developing that are combinations of some of these legacy chemicals, synthetic pesticides with our proprietary biologicals. So what we've found in the field over and over again is we can dramatically reduce the rate of some of these chemicals that people would like to spray less of and supplement that chemical with our proprietary biological and get efficacy that is good or better than the full rate of the chemical alone. So we call these conate products. Uh, They're still a little tricky. You've got to co-formulate the biological and the chemical into a single product. We've got several of those in development that get expedited review at EPA. It's about a nine-month process there. So we anticipate launching several more of those over the next couple of years. And then we've got a, uh, insecticides, uh, nematicides, herbicides, all uh, further back in the pipeline that we're working on as well. Okay, well, to finish off, a big question. If you could both tell me, what would be your biggest hope for the food system by 2050? Wow. I... I'm a huge techno optimist, and I believe we will be in a position in 2050 where we can say that we do not have a significant number of people on the planet who go to bed wondering where their next meal is going to come from. I think that's probably the biggest societal challenge we face going forward. And we have figured out how to grow enough food on the arable land we have in the context of of, you know, widely varying climate, which increasingly seems to be upon us. Well, I think that less animals should be grown to be eaten. You know, it's not, I mean, we're obviously talking about agriculture here, but wow, what an industry and how complicated is that? And, and how much food do we have to create and how much environmental impact is there? And uh, but the question is then, how do you replace the nutritional nutritional value? And this is part of why I'm so in, interested in synthetic biology. Because if you can sort of take a bacteria, put a gene in it, and it starts making in a steel tank suddenly proteins that are present in cow milk at good yields, and the proteins just drip out at the bottom of the steel tank. <laughs> you don't need the cow for the milk anymore to get those proteins, right? So suddenly you are creating different ways of making something that you have been getting access to by growing animals. That, that is a huge opportunity for us to rethink the whole meat production and I, I think that's so in its infancy right now. We all know about, you know, Impossible Burger and so, but there is so much more uh, behind this. And, and, and what's behind this is very dependent on synthetic uh, biology. So I think that is a, a 200, 2050. You, you look back 30 years probably and say, wow, you know, we had no idea that this industry was so at its infancy. I think uh, in biological crop protection has been around 
Okay, it's been we have never had a bacteria make a milk protein, but we have had bacteria control pests. So for us, it's more a matter of optimizing a system that already exists. While my 2050 dream is to create a system that doesn't exist yet. Great. You understand? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Future Food Podcast, and I hope we can stay in touch. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Louisa. Appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. All right. Thank you so much, Louisa. Great. Thank you both. Bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Future Food with me, Louisa Burwood-Taylor. For news and insights on the food tech and ag tech industries, go to agfundernews.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.